today on Ag News Daily. The phase one deal with China obviously is ongoing. Will they meet those numbers this year or not? We don't know, but uh, they're continuing to buy record numbers in, in corn, uh, beans, pork, uh, beef, uh, poultry even. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, I had to think about it there for a second, but it is Wednesday. I can confirm. It is Wednesday, and it's also my last official day of undergrad. I turned in my final paper earlier today. It was a 10 or I, I think I did. I ended up doing like 13 pages of a campaign plan, and it was my last big project of undergrad, and I'm all set to graduate on Saturday, so I'm very excited. Yay! I kind of forgot about that. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we're not doing, they, Tech is having an in-person graduation, but you had to buy tickets and only so many people could attend and all that stuff. So I'm just doing a virtual graduation on the 19th and then hopefully I'll be able to walk once I get my master's degree. Hopefully I walked for my master's degree, even though I didn't really attend Texas Tech in person, but it's a, it's a momentous occasion. So it certainly is. And I'm really holding out. Hopefully things are back to normal, especially since we are seeing those COVID-19 vaccines roll out. Yes, we are. I think we've seen some of the first ones, as you reported earlier this week, uh, be distributed. Um, I was watching the news a little bit this morning while I was at the gym, and they said that essential workers are going to be deemed first or most important for getting those. So probably going to see folks in the ag industry get some of those, I would say. I'm hoping so. Like I reported on yesterday, different states are requiring different things for the vaccine, but we will continue to keep an eye out on that. But to get things started talking about non-COVID related news, I wanted to talk about bird flu. Of course, we have been covering the latest news on that spreading over in Europe and some other foreign countries as well. And earlier today, we actually saw Japan's government call out for disinfections of poultry farms across the country to contain an outbreak of bird flu. And bird flu has been detected at six regional prefectures since last month in Japan's worst outbreak in more than four years. So it's very interesting to, to see that Japan is ramping up. And I really haven't heard of too much more in, in terms of at least disinfection when it comes to that bird flu strain, really just seeing people quarantine their birds or cull them. Not too much has been said so far other than this really about disinfection. That's interesting. I haven't, uh, to be honest, I still haven't seen a ton on the news wires about the bird flu. So I'm glad you're finding stuff. <laughs> I'm I'm glad too. It's really ramping through and I'm really surprised that we haven't really seen anything here in the U.S. But just going to be, you know, one other thing that I'm keeping my eye out on. I think it's highly interesting. I, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I'm really into zoonotic diseases. And so this bird flu is definitely one that I am keeping my ears on. Absolutely, Ashton. Well, another thing I'm keeping my ears on, as we've talked about on the podcast, I believe yesterday we talked about it, but it wasn't, and it's still not technically confirmed, but multiple news sources are confirming that former governor of Iowa and former secretary of agriculture, Tom Vilsack, will be this administration's new U.S. secretary of agriculture yet again. Um 
Again, Biden's people have not officially confirmed it, but we have seen sources close to the team confirm that he is indeed going to be the pick for the next Secretary of Agriculture. Of course, he ran or was Secretary of Agriculture for eight years under the Obama Obama administration. Um, I believe Vilsack and Biden are pretty close family friends. I've seen them together at multiple events here in Iowa when Biden was doing his presidential uh, election tour. But it seems that Biden uh, speculates that uh, Vilsack will be a pretty easy nomination to get approved in Congress. Shouldn't be a lot of hold up there. He's seen as a pretty moderate Democrat um, and obviously has connections to agriculture and rural America as he served for Iowa's governor for a number of years. But uh, it is now seeming that he is the front runner for taking on our next secretary of agriculture position. It certainly does, Delaney. And I feel like that name kind of came out of the woodworks. It's not one that I've really been seeing up until here recently. But I'm glad that you brought up the presidency because I have just a short story about the Trump administration. They have argued against a petition from oil refiners asking the U.S. Supreme Court to review a lower court decision that undermined the legitimacy of the EPA's biofuel waiver program. Department of Justice officials said the court should not review the case as it does not conflict with any other Supreme Court or appeals court decision, according to the brief that was submitted yesterday, December 8th. The officials argued that the court could review the decision after a similar case is completed in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But uh, definitely thought it was interesting. And from my understanding, a coalition of U.S. biofuels groups has since announced on Tuesday that it had filed a brief with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals challenging the Trump administration's decision in 2019 to grant 31 oil refineries exemptions from U.S. biofuel blending obligations. Well, Ashton, this is definitely going to be an ongoing debate. Uh, You know, since we are talking about a transitioning administration, I'm going to be interested to see how the Biden administration handles these EPA waivers. I don't I know. I guess I shouldn't say I don't pay close enough attention to politics to know what Biden's stance is on the biofuels industry. I would assume that he is pro biofuels. Uh, because that's, you know, going along with the environment and climate change and all that stuff, which I know is a big part of his agenda. But I don't know how he's going to handle this when he gets into office. You know, I'm not really exactly sure either, Delaney. We're kind of in the same boat on not knowing which way it'll go, but I'm definitely excited to see it because we have seen, I guess, similar stories to this one, you know, throughout the, at least this year while I've been a part of the podcast. So I'm definitely excited to see what this new administration does. As am I. Excited, maybe a little nervous. It's always interesting to see when a new president gets into office what they do, you know, the first couple of months. But uh, hopefully it's all for the better. Um, I have another update here for us, Ashton, on China. We are seeing pork sales and export sales to China surge higher through the last two years here with some of the latest numbers put out by the USDA and FAS. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 
Trade data, pork and pork product exports to China in 2019 totaled over $1.3 billion. Meanwhile, the value of China imports of U.S. pork and pork products from January through October of 2021 are already over $1.9 billion. So we're expecting to see this number near $2 billion by the end of the year. And this is honestly record highs. I mean, you look back over the last five years here, 2015, we were, we're talking 400 million dollars and now we're looking at here in 2020 1.9 to 2 billion dollars with a b so china is definitely increasing their exports but the the thing to the the caveat i suppose to keep into account here is that these exports in 2020 and 2019 were largely due at least the large increase largely due to African swine fever. So we could see in 2021 um, imports of U.S. pork in China to pull back again just slightly, as we just reported yesterday, you know, that huge hog facility that's going to produce some 2 million head of hogs a year. So they are quickly rebuilding their hog herd. But it's been a good two years for pork producers while it's lasted, that's for sure. Well, Delaney, although I am not too much of a pork eater, that definitely instills some pride in me. Wait, did you just say you're not a pork eater, Ashton? (laughs) Well, you see, I'm I'm more of a beef kind of person. I am too. I am too. But you got to support all proteins, Ashton. Oh, absolutely. I'm trying to get in. I guess I'm not much of a pork eater, I suppose, because I don't really know how to cook pork chops Mm. super well. And so I'm going to teach you that one. 145 degrees. It can still be pink. It can, it'll, I, in fact, it probably will still be a little pink, which is my favorite way to eat it. And you probably, if you're eating beef, you're eating hamburgers with bacon or steaks wrapped in bacon. So I'm guessing you still do eat pork quite a bit too. Oh yeah, for sure. But if I was, you know, trying to decide between a pork chop and a steak, I'm definitely going to go for the steak. I suppose I will too. Although pork, um, you know, is the cheapest and safest type of protein usually out there on the market, especially right now. So it's got its good, good flavor, good flair. We just need to teach you how to cook a good pork chop, Ashton. Yeah, that sounds like that uh, Iowa girl in you is coming out really supporting the <laughs> pork industry right now. I do love a good pork chop. Well, Delaney, I just have one other news story for today, and it's talking about beef. Well, really, the Beef Alliance, as they are hosting their first ever startup challenge, a virtual pitch competition for innovators with solutions related to the cattle feeding industry. The title of the challenge is Feeding Innovation, and it will pair technology startups directly with prospective customers and investors in the cattle feeding sector, allowing direct visibility of products. The competition is open to any startup offering solutions for feed yards with a focus on one or more of the seven key areas, including animal health, environment, traceability, and food safety. Finalists will pitch their product directly to major feed yard decision makers for a chance to win a $50,000 cash prize and a pilot program with a Beef Alliance member company. And I'm very excited about this and trying to, you know, see what the industry comes up with because I was in a feedlot and stalker cattle management class this semester. And I got to say that stuff is very, very interesting. And I think unlike a lot of other, you know, animal livestock sectors in the ag industry. That is very interesting. That might make an interesting um, upcoming Tech Tuesday interview. 
Certainly will. I'm making note of it. All right. Seems like I've got all sorts of ideas I just throw at you and make you do all the digging for them. But one thing we don't have to dig for, Ashton, are numbers ahead of tomorrow's WASD report, which is largely speculated to be a non-event. December's report usually doesn't move the markets too much, but there could still be a few surprises that the USDA throws at us last minute, as they sometimes do. But ahead of that report, I've got a few numbers here I want to run through quickly, Ashton, if you will indulge me in that. Absolutely. Okay, so these numbers are coming to us from Thomson Reuter. They are basically the trade estimates that we are intending to see ahead of tomorrow's report. Uh, You'll think back here, ending stocks for the November report pegged corn at a 1.7 billion bushel ending stocks number. The range for this report is adjusted slightly lower with the average being about a 1.6 and the range being anywhere from a 1.5 billion to a 1.7 billion bushel ending stocks number. Soybeans also adjusted lower as well as wheat. The soybean estimates number for November came in at a 1.9 million bush or excuse me 190 million bushels for the November report for this report here tomorrow the trade is expecting anywhere from a 120 million bushel to a 190 million bushels which would of course be kept the same the average trade guess is pegging this report to be about 169 million bushels that we see in US ending stocks which if realized would be the uh, smallest since i believe the 2013-14 marketing year so If we do continue to see these numbers, it's pretty bullish, but we're coupling that with the news right now that South American weather is really pressuring our grain markets. Today, thankfully, though, we got a little bit of a recovery from the down day and saw some green across the screen. So, Ashton, what do you say we hop right into it for today? Let's do it. Well, as I mentioned, green across the screen in the grains markets as the March corn contract added four cents to close at 4.23 and three quarters. The December up two pennies to close at 4.10 and a half. Soybeans today had a much needed day after trading lower every day this week and most of last week. The January contract added 12 and three quarters cents to close at 11.58 and a half. The March up 12 to close at 11.63 and a half. In Chicago wheat, the December contract up 13 and a quarter cent to close at 577. The March up 13 and a quarter as well to close at 583 and a quarter. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets, a little bit of mixed trade today across the cattle complex as the February contract added 20 cents to close at 110.97. The April up 12 and a half to close at 115.05. And in feeders, as I mentioned, mixed trade as the January contract shedding 55 cents there to close at 137.02. The March March up 30 to end the day at 138.80. And in lean hogs, December up, uh, December's expired, February up 67.5 cents to close at 66.27. The April up 52.5 to close at 69.75. And wrapping out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures quick. A little teased here, Gary Rasmussen, who I mentioned on the podcast just last week, has been quoted in a recent article about the dairy lawsuit that's going on right now that we previously reported on. We've shared that on our Facebook and Twitter page, so be sure to check that out. But dairy today, January contract added four cents to close at 16.10. The February up 17 to close at 16.91. Now, Ashton, tell us a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about for today's podcast. 
Today, we're going to be including some more NAFB 20 information. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the NAFB Convention Chat. We're with Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue. I'm your 2020 NAFB President, Rita Frazier, from the RFD Radio Network, Bloomington, Illinois. We are so happy uh, that all of you could join us this year. Secretary Perdue, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to visit with the NAFB. Your commitment to agriculture and the folks who tell the story of agriculture across the airwaves uh, is very appreciated, especially in a year like 2020. If you don't mind jumping right into your help for farmers, uh, aid money to farmers through MFP and, and other programs. Farmers have long said that they would prefer to have open trade lines rather than government assistance programs. But wouldn't it have been easier to resolve trade disputes rather than expend government funds on assistance programs? Well, good morning, Rita, and uh, good morning to all of you folks. I want to thank you, first of all, before we begin answering the question, because uh, you are the communicators. You all take uh, the news out of USDA and, uh, and Washington here and communicate it to those folks on the ground and uh, in a very reliable way. So I've, I've appreciated the relationship I've had with uh, farm broadcasters across the country, and I want to thank you for the part that you all play in, uh, in communication and getting information out to them. Obviously, uh, uh, trade and, uh, and support is very important. Uh, while it is absolutely true, there's not an honest farmer in America that would rather not have a, a good crop at a fair price than a government check. Uh, the fact is, when you don't have a good crop at a fair price, you need a government check. And that's what's happened over the last four years. I think it's interesting, Rita. Uh, it's almost like uh, we don't feel like we've been as successful as we have. But the factual numbers show economically that farm income minus government payments has increased uh, 33% over the last four years. I think a lot of times while the President Trump supported that when we were having the uh, calling out China and uh, many people wanted to talk about the trade war uh, actually going on there, we'd been in a war that we weren't in. We didn't realize we were in for 20 years. I think President Trump called that out and uh, now we see the benefits of the trade policy. So sometimes there has to be some pain. Obviously, these transfer payments were there with MFPs one and two, uh, CFAP one and two with COVID uh, to help support people where they could continue their livelihood uh, and not get so much in debt that they couldn't get out in that way during these period of times. And the good news is now we're seeing those prices and that, that we had hoped to have seen uh, four years ago. Actually, when you look at farm income, I was kind of surprised myself to see it literally bottomed in 16 and has risen each year, every every year since that period of time. In fact, in this this crop year in 2020, which has been strange in a number of ways, it's predicted that uh, uh, it will be farm income will be above the 20 year average there. So it really takes some of both. And I think uh, that's the uh, that's the benefit that we've seen. And now I think we're seeing trade policies result in prices that can be uh, very sustainable for our farm communities. You kind of referenced it, but going on about trade, and we'll talk about other countries, but with China, how do you square wins versus losses with that relationship? Uh, I think when you look at the numbers this year, uh, President Trump, all of us knew 
that there would be some short-term pain in the fact of uh, when you put tariffs on crops. And I think there was a lot more conversation about that uh, than uh, than actual uh, pain engaged. But we made us feel bad about that. We felt like it came at a bad time when that slump from when it uh, when prices uh, uh, peaked in 12 and 13 and kept coming down all the way to 16 there. And then on top of that, we thought we were losing markets. But anytime when you have are being mistreated, there has to be some temporary uh, changes there. And that's why President Trump authorized and we provided through the CCC the market facilitation programs one and two, both in 18 and 19, there to get us through that period of time to make up for that in that way. Farmers don't feel good emotionally. Uh, like I said, you'd rather have that uh, check come across the scales rather than the mailbox. We understand that. But nonetheless, it kept and we've got anecdotes of galore uh, from many farmers that have been uh, extremely grateful about the fact that that kept them solvent during this period of time where they can have better prices. What about success uh, with, with other countries? Uh, again, uh, the phase one deal with China obviously is ongoing. Will they meet those numbers this year or not? We don't know, but uh, they're continuing to buy record numbers in, in corn, uh, beans, pork, uh, beef, uh, poultry even, and uh, they haven't gotten into the ethanol energy sector like we would do. But then on the top of that, you've got the USMCA. Uh, this was an agreement that had been done uh, 25 years ago. And we were somewhat concerned when the president talked about withdrawing from NAFTA. But when we visited with him, he gave us the opportunity to get a better deal. And I think we have in many respects. We've modernized it from a technology perspective and uh, solidified those number one and two customers there on the northern southern border uh, for a long time. And we'll continue. The, the main thing about that, Rita, is uh, Bob Lighthizer, a trade ambassador, got an enforceable agreement. If, if Canada now wants to go around and circumvent that agreement uh, with its class seven milk or those kind of things, we've got the ability to, to go and to, uh, to sue them with very enforceable agreements. So, that's the main thing. No longer will we just kind of sit back and take what other people do to us, but we've got uh, legitimate areas of, of concern. The USMCA was a big win. Uh, the Japan agreement was, uh, again, uh, there was concern about withdrawing from TPP. But why should the largest customer of these countries uh, be treated the same as 11 other countries, uh, very minor types of things? So uh, we got a, a better deal that way. A Korean deal was uh, settled as well, as, as well as uh, uh, in the Indo-Pacific from Thailand and Vietnam and others have also increased. So I think I think we've laid the platform for increased trade. I, I frankly, uh, I'm not a market guru, but I think you see uh, the prices being reflected are reflecting that this fall, uh, you know, going forward. So I think uh, I think we have reset the trading paradigm for uh, for the future. Let's go on to rural broadband and success there. Can you talk about the importance of broadband access for farmers and, and rural areas in this country? It's vital. I mean, it is, uh, uh, it's no longer a luxury. Uh, when we began, President Trump, the day after I was sworn in, uh, signed the executive order on uh, rural prosperity. And as we studied that for 180 days with a, a interagency, about 22 different federal agencies, uh, connectivity is one of the main things that we came up with that could really help rural America, including farms 
and farmsteads. It's no longer uh, acceptable for uh, 20% of the of the nation here to be cut out of connectivity of electronic commerce. That's just not acceptable. And uh, these reconnect programs that uh, the president has directed us and Congress funded to get uh, uh, to get these uh, connectivity out here with broadband uh, to literally to the farmsteads, precision agriculture, e-commerce. Farmers are great entrepreneurs. They can market themselves all over the world if they have connections. Connections certainly. COVID has shown us uh, with uh, distance learning. What are the What are the country kids going to do when school's not in? How are they going to learn if they can't be connected? Telehealth, those kind of issues. So, uh, precision agriculture. We believe there are literally uh, uh, things coming along with the 5G and others that uh, we can't even imagine right now that will make our farm communities and our farmers much more productive uh, than they can even imagine even now. Let's, you mentioned COVID-19. Let, let's talk about that and uh, how you worked with the country, with processors to, to keep the food moving, to keep the nation moving. Well, once again, uh, it was rather anxious back in the spring as we saw the infection uh, uh, ravaging our processing employees. Uh, uh, you had a dual threat, obviously, keeping employees safe. Uh, you know that any processing plant in the protein sector is typically uh, side by side and very close and juxtaposition with one another. So they had to make uh, serious and quick arrangements in that way. And in the meantime, we saw we were tracking our production of uh, protein, both in the beef, poultry and pork section. And we saw it easing down. And I kept asking, are we heading for a cliff or not? And yes, we did fall off a cliff very temporarily, but the good news was, in working with uh, our, our public health officials, working with CDC, working with the Department of Labor through our occupational self, uh, safety and health organizations, as well as the president uh, finally issuing an executive order uh, in indicating how important this was with the Defense, Defense Production Act. We had a lot of local areas there that had different ideas about what should be done. In fact, some states... They want to shut down processing for 14 days. And uh, can you imagine the panic that would have existed in the in the in the American consumer out here if they went and there was no meat in the case at all? We did see limitations in various places and a lack of choices. But for the most part, uh, we were able to avoid a total empty case uh, in most areas, most of the areas that way. And I give credit to the companies who worked and really spent a lot of money uh, trying to protect their employees while continuing to do a very essential job of the food supply chain. We all learn a lot more about the food supply chain than I think any of us ever thought about. Uh, and I did as well. Uh, I didn't realize we were probably consuming over half of our calories and nutrition outside of the home. We had a very efficient food supply chain that was set up to supply the uh, food service industry, restaurants, hotels, conventions, colleges, schools that way, and they could not easily pivot to make consumer products. If you're dealing with a 400-pound block of cheese, your homeowner's not going to go in a grocery store and buy a 400-pound block of cheese, and they did not have the processing equipment to make consumer packaging. So we had to work in that way. But uh, I think the Defense Production Act 
enabled us, gave us the power, although we never had to implement that. We never had to execute the Defense Production Act, but it gave everyone an idea of how serious it was and how we all needed to work together. And the good news was the B-bottom. It fell off of a cliff, but it kind of climbed back up very quickly as we tracked day by day on the production back up to 94, 95, and now 100 plus percent uh, uh, prior to COVID. So this was a, uh, a very anxious time, and I'm very proud of our food supply chain, our growers. You know that our farmers were backed up with uh, uh, hogs and other animals that couldn't be processed. We had to uh, depopulate some poultry as well. But uh, everyone worked through it just like we always do in American agriculture, and uh, I think we'll be stronger for it. Again, we've said this, you know, quite a few times already here on the podcast, but it was great to be a part of an AFB 20 and hopefully next year, as of course we're reporting on those COVID-19 vaccines, we will be able to once again go out and do non-virtual events. That would be the hope, Ashton, by maybe, you know, springtime, we'll see things start to open back up again. That's what I'm really hoping. I've heard, you know, uh, not of not seeing, you know, mass reopenings until maybe May or June. But I'm still very excited because that means we will get a normal summer, I suppose. But we can only continue to hope. But folks, uh, if you want to listen to any of our future episodes here on the Ag News Daily podcast to get you through some of the cold winter months before we get to reopen, you can listen to those on the website at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.